And on top of that, you know, five people are pretty nimble, so they know how to engineer their income. So the exchange is strictly income based. There's no asset testing. Welcome to the Fi Show, where you'll get a behind the scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Fi Show. Before we jump in, let's check in with Cody. How's your weekend and week been? Pretty good, man. Been staying busy, trying to, you know, slang some real estate deals, keep all my businesses afloat. But generally, it's been pretty good. I know we just entered October, which is scary. It's insane how fast 2020 has been going by and the fact that there's a new year coming around in less than two months. But all things are looking pretty good for me. How are things over in your arena? Yeah, things are kind of slowing down for us. We finally got settled into our new apartment, getting settled into Austin, Texas. And this last weekend, we spent most of the time celebrating Leslie's mom's birthday, 70th birthday. Shout out to Rhonda, who is actually a lawyer in wills and estate trusts, things like that. So she actually would be a good guest for the show, I think, someday. And real quick, let's take a moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote-unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called Personal Capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans, these can be 401ks, these can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards. They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. Today's episode, we're excited to bring you Lynn and Jackie, who are just bringing in tons of knowledge on how to choose your healthcare options that you're going to have in front of you. Open enrollment is right around the corner. Lynn has been out there crowdsourcing all this information to build just the source data for what you can choose from, especially if you are in the FI community or if you're an entrepreneur. And then Jackie is this certified HSA specialist, does tons of talks on it and just gets really pumped up when you hear her talk about how powerful a health savings account really can be. And I think it was just so cool to get two people who know the FI community's mindset. Because when you're talking to a general audience, like the terminology, the things that people are striving for, I know like we were talking about kind of controlling how much income you're bringing in in a year, which is an interesting thing that sounds crazy to 99% of the population. But there are people in the FI community who have the power to, you know, bring in X amount of dollars one year and then double that next year, just taking advantage of the tax code and everything that we like to do nerding out in the FI community. So this episode is jam packed with stuff and open enrollment. If you're listening to this live during the month of October, 2020, open enrollment is right around the corner on November 1st. That's why Justin and I wanted to drop this on you guys in a timely manner so you can make informed decisions and choose the best options for you. And if you want to access anything we talked about, all the links and a brief description of the episode will be available in our show notes at thefyshow.com slash Lynn and Jackie. That's L-Y-N-N and J-A-C-I-E, Lynn and Jackie. But without further ado, let's welcome to the show. I left traditional work full-time 2017 and somebody compared me to Mr. Money Mustache and I had no idea who that was. So I hadn't read blogs or anything. Um, and people assumed my husband was going to work more. And I said, no, he's actually going to work less. So I set out on a journey to figure out who this guy was, went to Camp Mustache. That's where I met the Playing With Fire folks. I know you guys have had it on, had them on your podcast, Scott and Taylor, and found this whole world of five folks. It's incredible. And so um, ever since then, I've been getting to know the, the FIRE community. I started investing babysitting money when I was 12. Um, lost it all. with I had a brain tumor, which is why I got very passionate about health and health care. And then uh, 
rebuilt to a point where passive income overtook my nursing wages. And so work became optional. And that's sort of my journey here. Awesome. And Jackie, we can't let Lynn have all the fun. So what was your background and introduction to the fire community? Well, for me, I retired last year, reached fire, and I did all that in my 40s as a single mom. And I probably started out, you know, really, really poor growing up. I was raised by a single dad with six kids. And so it was kind of tough just growing up, you know, going through adulthood, getting married, then getting divorced, uh, had my daughter. And I started following the FIRE community probably about eight or so years ago before it was even a thing. And so after I got divorced, that was my wake-up call to get my finances together. And one of my biggest obstacles was figuring out health insurance because I'd worked for corporate America my entire life and got the dirt cheap health insurance for me and my daughter. And so once I was able to really dig in and look at all of my options, I was able to figure it out. So it was no longer something that was keeping me from reaching my goal of retiring early. So I feel like I kind of became an expert during that process. And um, one of the things that I kind of call my five superpower is I started maxing out my health savings account and investing in it about for about 11 years. And it grew and grew. We know the magic of compound growth. And right now that account is worth about $140,000. And I had to learn all by myself how these things worked because they, when they first came out, nobody really knew about them. And finally, when I figured it out, I decided, you know what? I know so much about this now. I'm going to go ahead and get a credential. So I actually have a credential. Uh, It's a health savings account expert, and it's issued through the American Bankers Association. So that is what kind of solidified uh, all this knowledge that I have on health savings accounts and high deductible health plans. So I kind of want to take this conversation real quickly to a 30,000 foot view, because I know myself and I know other people in this community, just there's so many question marks about healthcare and not just like healthcare and fire and healthcare as an entrepreneur, just healthcare in general and how the whole system works. I think a lot of people just sign on the dotted line because the employer says, here, here's your healthcare, but they have no clue how it actually works. So Lynn, I was hoping maybe you could tackle this first and then Jackie, you could add whatever you want to it. But could you just kind of give us a really, really general overview of how the healthcare system works here in the US? Well, that's a big question, Cody. I love it. I, <laughs> you, It's very complex, but but generally... Uh, If you have a traditional plan, you'll have monthly premiums that you pay. And then you will also have your deductible, which is the price that you have to pay before your insurance effectively kicks in and starts helping. Then you have your out-of-pocket maximum, which is the maximum you can expect to pay. So over the course of a year, if you have sort of a traditional employer-based plan or a plan that's bought on the exchange, then you will have a combination of those costs. But, I mean, the a basic overview of the U.S. health system is often fee-for-service, where they are reimbursed for the types of intervention that's provided. Uh, what I didn't mention yet is that one of the things that was really bothering me was about how to figure out health insurance and health care and early retirement. And so I spoke with actually 100 different members of the FIRE community to compile a database of options. I went to FinCon to see who's working on this, who can I give this to so that they can create it. Nobody was working on it, but they wanted to see it. And so I talked with Mindy from Bigger Pockets and she helped me announce it because it, it is complex. I found I was able to find 22 different basic options for the the fire community. It's the same thing for the entrepreneur community. And along that same thread, Jackie, when I'm looking at plans that I'm getting from my employer, you know, I tend to choose like, hey, I'm a young person. I want to take whatever is cheapest, which is generally something with a health savings account, um, something with a higher deductible, something that's going to cost me less per month, maybe a higher maximum out of pocket, because my thought process is the likelihood of me needing it is low. And if I do need it, the maximums are not that high. Am I am I dumbing that down too much? No, I think you definitely got it because the these plans are called high deductible health plans, but also they are low premium plans, meaning you are paying less every single month. 
that automatically is going to the insurance company. And I was I was just like you, Justin. So between me and my daughter, we both were pretty low consumers of health care. I mean, we didn't even meet the $500 deductibles when we had them. So as soon as these high deductible plans came with, again, a smaller premium and the money that I would have paid to the insurance company, I can now put that in a health savings account. Plus my employer is putting money in there too. I mean, to me, it really was a no brainer. And even though, you know, you're young and healthy, I'm young and healthy, my daughter's young and healthy. I've had people to tell me that even if they have someone in their family that has a chronic illness or are high consumers of healthcare, they've ran the numbers. And in some cases, it could still work. And so, Lynn, could you talk about some of the other pros and cons of an HSA? I know and I've heard you talk about these extensively. And I mean, I know the HSA has been called in the FI community, like the triple tax leverage vehicle. And there's just so many pros, but I'm sure there's some cons. And I know, Jackie, you were just kind of talking about running the numbers a bit, but I'd love if you could just kind of highlight some of these that people maybe aren't seeing. There are really two places that I recommend people check out that are incredible. Jackie's to- was the one who told me about Wix, Wix Health. Wix Health has an awesome we'll put- calculator. Yes. So there's two main resources that I recommend. It's Wex Health, and we'll put that in the show notes. And also the Mad Scientist has a HSA article, and we can also put that in the show notes. The pros and cons of a high deductible health plan, which is often correlated with an HSA, because you have to have a very high deductible in order to qualify for a health savings account. Jackie, are you nodding with me? She's an HSA expert. (laughs) So so the downside of having a high deductible plan is it can, studies have shown that it can discourage folks from receiving health care because they'll know that they're responsible for that initial portion of health care. So what Jackie said really is you need to sort of know your past behavior. Now, nobody can know exactly what utilization rate you'll use in the future for health care, but past behavior is sort of best predictor that we have. And so it's kind of a are you going to be able to get health care? Are you going to be able to get over that financial barrier of receiving health care if you need it? So just sort of knowing yourself is probably the best thing when considering HSAs. Um, on my website, I have some things to consider about pros and cons of HSAs and high deductible health plans for people to consider. And I also um, can add in there, so there are definitely some cons, um, because when I was doing my research on health savings account, I really did want to get a full picture of what was good, what was bad, what was not. So there are certain um, types of insurance that are way better than a high deductible plan with an HSA. For instance, if you have TRICARE and you're in the military and you're working for the government, I would not give that up to try to get a plan with a health savings account. Um, Also, from a political perspective, um, some people will say, well, we've got a broken healthcare system and these HSAs and high deductible plans, that's just a Band-Aid, temporary, because it's really not a fix because mostly wealthy people or at least people that can pay for their expenses out of pocket and save and be able to deal with these high deductible health plans, you know, people that are poor, it, it really doesn't help them. So there's some arguments, certainly, um, against it. But the really big thing is to look at your situation. There's calculators out there. There are things that you can look at in your healthcare history and looking at how you utilize healthcare. How often are you going to the doctor? What medications are your own? You are you on? Uh, you have to look at those things to be able to determine what's best for your family. And this one, I think uh, both of you can chime in on this one. We can start with you, Jackie, this time. But my question is, when we look at these plans, they often have that maximum out-of-pocket expense. Let's say it's $10,000. You know, I work with a lot of folks who are making good money and they're still freaking out that somehow they're just going to be completely bankrupt with, through healthcare, like like that things are going to go way over this $10,000 limit, like that they're going to get forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 bills that they're expected to pay. Is there any foundation behind that fear? Or if you have a $10,000 max out of pocket, should you feel pretty comfortable that that really is the worst case scenario? 
Yeah, that's a good point. And and that's the sticker shock, right? I mean, when people are used to seeing a $500 or $1,000 deductible and all of a sudden it's $6,000, which I think is what mine was uh, for 2019. So again, you go back to, to thinking about what has been your healthcare behavior in the past. So if you go to the doctor twice a year to get your wellness visits, and that's pretty much it. Maybe every now and then something will happen where maybe you need to go see a doctor. But generally, many people, especially younger people, are barely using their annual visits. And when you are on a high deductible health plan, your once a year wellness visits are absolutely free. Your well woman or well child visits are absolutely free. So you don't even pay for those. So if that's all you're doing, you're paying nothing. And even if something catastrophic happens, let's say you get in an accident, a major accident, let's say you get cancer, the max out of pocket that might need to be used. And that's why I think the scariest part is the first year or two, right? Because if something bad happens in that first year or two, that might kind of turn you off. But once you're over that hurdle where you've been over it for a year or two and either you haven't used it, um, you can start to invest a part of that and maybe keep in cash what your out-of-pocket is or at least your deductible. And you will start to kind of get a little more comfortable with it. But but we're all a little uncomfortable with something that's brand new. And for a lot of people, the high deductible plans with a HSA is kind of new, but certainly worth digging into. Yeah, Justin, I wanted to add to that too, because I'm I get very passionate about that. I think the out-of-pocket maximum, I think you're right. That in most cases is the worst case scenario. So I think people think, you know, could it be a hundred thousand dollars out of pocket? Perhaps, but very unlikely. Insurance companies make note of those who have hundred thousand dollar type claims. Um, I think that the out-of-pocket max really is, in most cases, your worst-case scenario. So you take the out-of-pocket max, you add up your premiums. So the out-of-pocket max does not include the premiums. Uh, So if you add that to your premiums, that should be the high end in almost every case, with the exception of some insurance companies will say they have exclusions. So if you have something that they consider an exclusion to that, that's why it can be frustrating because you can talk to an insurance company and they'll say this is no guarantee of payment, blah, 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 blah. So we none of us have any control over that. But for most of the time, the out-of-pocket max is really going to be your highest amount. What I'd love, and if anybody in your audience has this information, is to find out how often people hit their out-of-pocket max. The out-of-pocket max is set at the federal level. It's 16,000 or 17,000, and that's set at the federal level. And so it's not some number that isn't completely known. So it is a huge number. It's an absolutely huge number, and that's for the family out-of-pocket. The individual out-of-pocket is much lower than that. It's about half that. But I think it's a good place to start. That's kind of, for most people, going to be a worst-case scenario with some very rare exceptions. And is it true that out of that max out-of-pocket, that oftentimes does not include medication? It depends, on, it depends on the plan. So that's why it's really important. Um, many of us go through open enrollment uh, between October, November, and December. So that's when you really want to compare your plan. So if you've been on this traditional plan for your entire life, paying the 15 bucks a month or 20 bucks a month, that seems great, but look at the premium that you're paying. Most, many insurance companies will include the medication as part of the deductible and the max out of pocket. But you do want to make sure that that's the case. I mean, when I'm looking and comparing, I'm looking at that. I'm looking at the medications. I'm looking at, um, you know, all these different factors that play into what is my worst case scenario if I choose this high deductible plan. Yes. To add to that, it's possible those medications could be considered, quote, exclusions. So if you have an expensive, say, chemotherapy drug, it could be considered excluded, not part of the plan. So in those cases, it won't apply to meeting some of those criteria. That's why, so there's another resource that I love, 
um, eHealth Insurance is an aggregator. It's an insurance aggregator, and you have the option to enter your medications that you take, and it will optimize for what plan in your area will be good for those particular medications. And so that's one way to try to make sure that it's not an exclusion to the best of your ability. But yes, there are cases. There's all these little nuances. That's why it's so frustrating and so difficult for people to talk about. That's why everybody's complaining about this, but nobody is talking about it because, you know, Jackie and I don't want to make promises. We don't want to, every plan is different, but I think we should at least talk about it, at least acknowledge it, and at least work together to try to figure out and make it a little bit more clear. Yeah. And just to build on what Lynn was saying. So let's say if a certain drug or medication is excluded, Okay, you don't always have to use your insurance anyway, and sometimes it's cheaper. In most cases, if there is not a generic equivalent to a drug, you can go to that manufacturer's website and they usually have huge discounts. And I know because my daughter, um, she has asthma. And I remember the rack rate for one of her asthma medications was like $1,100. But by the time, and I was on this high deductible plan, right? I, I would have been responsible for the whole thing. But I go to their website and I think with the discounts and everything that I was able to find for this medication, which she may need more than once, it brought it all the way down to, I think, $100 for, um, I think, a three-month supply. So as far as healthcare overall, Aside from insurance, you know, when you have drugs, go to the manufacturer's website. If there is a procedure or something that you need done that's not an emergency, there are places that will allow you to shop and compare and make sure that you are using the most cost-effective thing. And on top of that, most of them are more than willing to break up the payments into installments with no interest or anything. So those are things that you can do outside of your insurance. Yes. You can also ask for a generic alternative to a medication right. that you're prescribed. So those are often one-tenth the price. Awesome. All right. We're on an actionable tip train here. I love it. And let's keep the train rolling. <laughs> so obviously, everybody's healthcare situation is really different. Everyone has different conditions. Everyone's different ages, genders, sexes, whatever. Whatever the thing might be that differentiates you from someone else. But are there any just general guidelines you guys would suggest when you go about building that healthcare plan? Like if you're making X number of dollars or if you're X age, maybe this is the deductible you should be aiming for, or this is the out-of-pocket maximum that you should feel comfortable with. And again, I know it's super nuanced, so it's hard for you guys to answer. And this is not financial, this is not investment advice or financial <laughs> advice or healthcare advice. This is just kind of general info. But I'd love if you had some just tips around building that plan. I actually have a few. So when you get your open enrollment packet, and these days it's normally online, most employers or marketplaces are going to have a way that you can shop and compare the plans. Here are the three things that you want to look at and add them all up together. You want to look at the premium, first of all. That's the money that you pay out every single month that goes to the insurance company. You will never get that back. That's a sunk cost. Then second, you want to look at the deductible. That's going to be your semi-worst scenario. Okay, am I going to meet my deductible? The last one is your max out-of-pocket. So if I get cancer, if I have this horrible accident that keeps me in the hospital for um, six months, that's going to be your third thing. So you want to look at your premium. You want to look at your deductible. And you want to look at your max out of pocket. By the time you do the math on those three things, that's going to get you really close to comparing apples to apples. One of the other things that I recommend, and there's a lot of different ways you can do it. And I know that I've mentioned e-health insurance. I have no relationship with them. I just like how they take the out of pocket max, the deductible, and they look at you can look at it basically, it's sort of a graph that they project on. So if you tend, what I recommend is you look at and consider, are you a high utilizer of healthcare typically, or are you a lower utilizer of healthcare? And in general, we're talking, this is not advice, this is generalities here. In general, if people are a lower utilizer of healthcare, then they benefit from having the lower premiums and the higher out-of-pocket or the higher deductible on average. 
but that, you know, you want to consider your own risk tolerance, et cetera. And the opposite is true. If people tend to be a higher utilizer of healthcare, the higher premium, is that making sense? Absolutely. So paying higher per month, um, mathematically, that tends to average where people who are higher utilizer of healthcare, if they have a higher premium plan, they end up a bit more financially ahead acknowledging all the impossible nuances, but that's a big generality that I've seen mathematically. Yeah. And if you remember that the premium that you're paying, that is gone forever. So the health savings account was created and you can only have one right now if you're on a high deductible health plan. So that was created for you to sort of create this little savings account, that Delta where, okay, I saved a whole lot on my premiums, Let me put the difference into a health savings account. And if something happens, I have the money and it's tax-free money. So that's what that health savings account is there. But if you're a year or two down the road and you see that you haven't used that money, go ahead and invest a part of of it. And before you know it, it's going to grow and grow and grow. And guess what? It's still tax-free as long as you use it for qualified health care. So Jackie, as the resident HSA expert here, I did want to ask this question, which is, I've heard of some people who actually fund their HSA, they encounter some kind of medical expense, but actually choose not to use their HSA and just pay cash out of pocket, you know, if they're financially stable enough, so that that HSA can continue growing. Is that something you would recommend if, or if you want to just break that scenario down a little more? Yeah, let me break that down for you a little bit. So there are many people that decide to just pay out of pocket. And in my situation with me and my daughter, I was able to pay out of pocket. But again, there weren't any really big bills. I think the biggest bill I ever got over the last 11 years was like $550. And I decided to just continue to let my HSA money grow and stay invested And I just was able to pay out of pocket. And again, these providers, they'll divide that up into three months, no interest to make it super easy. Now, not everybody is in the position to do that. So I would say uh, a health savings account is ideal for people that are two things, either one of two things. Either they are wealthy enough and have enough income to cover all their out of pocket where they can keep that HSA growing, or they are low user users of healthcare where they hardly have any bills to begin with. Now, the thing is, even if you don't reimburse yourself right now and take the money out of the health savings account, you can still hold on to those receipts. Do it digitally, you know, because this could be, there's no time limit in which you have to use that money or reimburse yourself for those expenses. It could be 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, which is what I've done. Like if I roughly add up all the receipts over the last 11 years between me and my daughter, it's about $6,000. So it's a small amount to begin with. However, I have the receipts. I just, you know, I'm kind of low tech. So I just put it in a folder in my email, right? And I put like the amount and I put the date and that's it. So, you know, now that I'm retired, if I ever want to use that, that's tax-free money. So um, it's using those, holding onto those receipts is a part that a lot of people don't really know about, but that is something you can easily do. It's written in the IRS code that there's no time limit for you to use or for you to reimburse yourself. So that could be a nice little, I would say a nice little superpower going into uh, fire and retiring early. And isn't it like if you hit 65 and you haven't used those for medical expenses, you can start to use those funds for other expenses, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, the, it's it's a very exhaustive list on the benefits of HSAs and how you can use them. Once you turn 65, you, can, you will not be uh, penalized. And normally there's a 20% penalty, which is a lot steeper than, you know, IRAs and, and 401ks. So if you wait until you're 65 and you still have this nice little nest egg in your HSA, you can use that money for anything and you're not going to pay the penalty, but you will still be responsible for taxes on that money. Just no penalty. At that point, it starts to look a lot like a traditional IRA. Now, uh, and another thing, as you get older and, and you know, guys, we're young and healthy now, right? But as we get older, we're not going to be so healthy probably because uh, statistics show as we get older, 
um, we start to become people that use healthcare services a lot more. So when that happens, let's say you're at Medicare age, you can actually use your health savings account dollars to pay for um, Medicare premiums. You can use it to pay for long-term care insurance. You can use it for vision. You can use it for hearing. You can use it for dental. So it is a huge exhaustive list. And I think that's pub number 502 that lists out all these things that you can use your health savings account money for. So don't think that it'll be sitting there and you'll never have to use it. If you don't have to use it, consider yourself the luckiest person on earth. But more than likely, as we get older, we will be using those HSA dollars. And I wanted to add, Medicare is far off for a lot of us, but it only covers about 80% of medical costs. It doesn't cover everything. So there's quite a bit, vision, dental, co-pays, that will be out of pocket after the Medicare age. Now, one one other thing we didn't talk about is the health share ministries Yeah, Uh, I've heard a lot of people talk about that. I mean, when I was looking at my list of options as I was approaching retirement and knew that I didn't have that juicy subsidy from my employer and I looked at health share ministries, it wasn't for me because there was a lot of uh, restrictions around it. But that's something that people uh, talk about a lot as well. And Lynn, you may know a little bit more about this than me. Yeah, I'm I've looked up health sharing ministries quite a lot. So HealthShare Ministries, the concept for folks who don't know, is that it's a group of people, often it's religious-based, and it's not technically insurance. It's considered a donation that you give to a group, and with the understanding that you will be reimbursed for your medical expenses. And there are a lot of exclusions, uh, including anything sort of sinful, usually, like um Birth control, I think, is often an exclusion. Vasectomies, uh, any sort of sinful type activities, that's not true for all of them. There's a few different health sharing ministries, and you'll want to look at it. it. It's fairly, it can be fairly popular with the fire community because the deduct or the uh, premiums are so low. But there's a lot of cautions that I have. It, it's not essentially insurance, and often you have to pay upfront and then try to get reimbursement on the back end, there's been a lot of people who are outside of traditional employment right now. And so they're going to the health sharing ministries and they're seeing a lot of delay in payment. And so there's a lot of, you know, it's a consideration. A lot of folks in the fire community consider it. I have a lot of cautions about it that I want folks to know about before they they do it. I'm not saying it's good or bad, but just to know that it's not truly insurance and to kind of look at how it's going, it'll be very interesting to see how any insurance plan, um, including the health sharing ministries, do with our current health system right now with um, coronavirus. You know, it'll be very, very interesting to see how that all plays out. Also, with the unemployment, we have higher unemployment. A lot of our employment is linked to health care. And so I think we're going to see a lot of transitions of people's employment. So just to sort of be aware Uh, And on my site, I have the pros and cons of health sharing ministries, the things that other FIRE members have said, you know, to be aware of about those and about every plan, actually. All right, Lynn. Well, I can't just let you off the hook with that last comment there. So could we talk about (laughs) some of the pros and cons of health share ministries? And I know my mom tunes into every one of our episodes, and I'm pretty sure she's on one of those ministries. I'm not exactly sure which one, but I'm sure she'd love to hear along with thousands of other listeners who may be considering it or maybe using a health sharing ministry themselves. So with regard to health sharing ministries, the pros are obviously the monthly premium tends to be more affordable than other plans because of the reduced administrative burden and presumably a healthier overall member cohort because the plans do, they are allowed to exclude certain folks. Uh, they're, They're unlike insurance plans where they are allowed to exclude based on perhaps smoking or what have you. So that's the pros. Uh, Also that they don't have typically a network of providers. It's pretty much anybody. However, um, the cons are that you usually have to pay ahead of time. A lot of places don't understand what health sharing ministries are. They don't understand how it works. And so there can be a a lot of administrative burden on the, the utilizer of the plan. As we mentioned, it's not technically. Another con is that it's not technically considered insurance can be limited often to the Christian faith. 
including, well, and there are some ex- some exceptions to that, but most of them are Christian-based who lead a healthy lifestyle, which that's not a bad thing. That's just, that could be a downside for those who do mild drinking. Some of them, I think, exclude mild drinking. It requires, we talked about the ability to pay up front. The billing, I've heard from other members of the fire community, the billing can can often be an issue. So what they'll think is that they're getting covered and they'll have an agreement with the provider and then they'll try to bill and they'll bill the remainder to the individual back. They call it balance billing. So where the individual getting the health care is paying, thinking they're paying the whole amount, the health sharing ministry agrees to reimburse that whole amount, but the provider has a different idea of what that bill actually should have been. And so they bill the remainder to the individual, to you. To, and so we've seen that happen. I'm told fire community members have seen that happen where they get what is called balance billing. And then it's a bit of back and forth. So there's some other expenses that are not in line with the stated values, and it depends on the plan. I'm really not trying to disparage anybody on any particular plan for or against, but I do want folks to look at what they have. So like prenatal care for unwed mothers or birth control vasectomies. So just look at those exclusions. So Jackie, I actually was in the military and had that awesome tracker plan you were talking about. Uh, now I work for a company that has the HSA high deductible plan that actually has zero dollar premiums. So I'm getting paid to have my health wow, insurance. Wow, you're kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Do they put something in your HSA too? Yeah. So the, yeah, so you'll get the HSA match and zero dollar premiums. That's pretty darn good. Okay. <laughs> so I've got these, I'm, like I'm on a pretty hot streak, right? I've got two awesome things, both obviously tied to, to an employer. But of course, when I get ready to retire early, and if I don't feel comfortable with a health ministry, I'm going to be screwed. I'm going to be paying $2,000 a month. I mean, I'm sure there's no other options out there, right? (laughs) There are still a few other options. And you guys, I ran through a list of about seven or eight options when I did my research. I I wish that I had Lynn's Phi Healthcare before I started doing all of my research and retired. And that's why I just cannot uh, stop singing the praises of how great that is. Now, here's a few things that you would want to think about. Um, You've got the um, ACA exchange at healthcare.gov. Now, that's what I ended up going with this time. And it's very state specific. And to an extent, it's very county specific. When you go to healthcare.gov, the first thing they're going to ask you for is your zip code. And if you happen to be in a state where the choices are limited, your premiums could be pretty expensive. I live in the state of Ohio. When I looked at 2020, I had 45 different plans to choose from. And on top of that, you know, five people are pretty nimble, so they know how to engineer their income. So the exchange is strictly income-based. There's no asset testing. So for my state, the best assistance that you can get with your premium, I guess it's called a subsidy, you you have to be at around $18,000. That gives you your max subsidy. So even though I live off about $40,000 a year, I know how to get my adjusted gross income to be at $18,000. Things like Roth contributions or health savings account money, none of those count towards your AGI. So you have a little bit of flexibility to engineer your income. But when when you're W2 employee, you have no control over that. So the ACA could be an option. Again, that depends on where you're located. If you decide to go back to school or take some classes at a college, a lot of universities will offer dirt cheap health insurance. And I, for one, thought that that was going to be what I would go with, but I'm doing an online program and that excluded me from getting this dirt cheap health insurance. But if you have, if you decide you want to go back to school, that's an option. And then um, remember some, some people think about um, some geo arbitrage where they want to do some medical tourism or they want to live abroad because it seems that the U S has the, one of the worst health insurance systems. But when you go to another country, it's almost nothing. 
So that's an option for some people. Again, that was on my list, but I didn't end up doing that because I didn't really want to move out of the country. Um, probably the other one to really think about is, are you are you a part of a professional association, maybe a chamber of commerce, something like that? A lot of times they will offer group discounts for health insurance premiums. So I would definitely see if you are affiliated, associated, or a member of some type of organization that might offer some um, discount for you. And then, of course, if somebody wants to work part-time, there's a lot of cool employers that will let you work part-time and um, still get health insurance. I think Amazon is one of those places, but there's a whole list of them out there. I wanted to add on to Jackie with one of the really interesting things about the fire community and also the digital entrepreneurs is about the travel combination of healthcare. And so I interviewed a lot of people who used travel insurance, international health insurance, and full-time expat living and medical tourism and sort of compared all those, the things to look for, the companies that provide those, because that is that sort of geo-arbitrage component that's specific for our communities, for the digital nomads, for the fire community, to see what companies are people going with, what are the pros and cons, when does, say, medical tourism make sense, medical tourism being you go somewhere for a particular procedure. So, like, an urgent issue would not make sense for that, obviously, but uh, a lot of people will do that for dental care, you know, to sort of compare which of those plans make sense in what case. And uh, a fair amount of the fire community does use those sort of travel combinations. So I know you mentioned, Jackie, that the fire community is nimble, which is so true, but I'd love if we could give some really tactical numbers advice here. Like if someone is going to retire next year, and obviously it's state by state, it's condition by condition, it's person by person, but what would you budget for someone year by year, month by month for their actual fine number? Like, do you have a general guideline or just some kind of number we can throw out there that people should have in mind to be safe? Worst case scenario, if they're in the worst state ever and they have <laughs> all <Right>. these complications. <laughs> Here is how I would find that number. I would probably start with your state's exchange. You can put in your zip code and it will let you shop those plans. Now, we don't know what's going to happen to the ACA, but all we can do is work with what we have today. So I would say start there. For me, my plan that I decided to get was $450 without a subsidy. So that was my number. I'm a single person. I It's just me. Um, I was 49 years old at the time. And so you will plug in all of that basic information. It took me like five minutes. Uh, it was pretty quick. But that gave me a sense of what I could expect to pay if I didn't qualify for a subsidy. Now, luckily, I did qualify. And now I'm paying about 50 something bucks a month. And um, the other thing I would say as far as budgeting is uh, we are kind of tied to our company or the place that we work with when it comes to dental insurance as well. So. I, in my state, I'm in Ohio again, uh, they had some really cheap dental insurance plans. I think I'm paying like $16 a month, which was not that much different than what I was paying through my employer. So keep that in mind as well, that many of the exchanges may have dental insurance as well, but I would use that for my benchmark. Um, and as we prepare to retire, or if we're a small business already and we're just an entrepreneur, you do have to look at those things because it varies so much based on where you're located. And then whatever the high number is, I would definitely stick with the high number. And I would go by not only my premiums, but what you can expect to have to come out of pocket for things that your you know, insurance is not going to cover. Like, I, like if you, uh, you, the deductible that you're paying, you want to budget for that and out of pocket, maybe that could be more, look more like an emergency fund or something like that. So that's how it start to construct my budget. Yes, I, Jackie, I completely agree with you. For the vast majority of people, they'll be looking at the exchange, the plan online. There's a lot of alternatives to that, that we outline, but that is going to be the majority of the population. And that's going to be a good starting point to see what exists now. And we don't know what will be in the future. But one thing that I wanted to mention that we haven't really talked about is this idea of prevention with healthcare costs. So with when you insure a house, 
you don't just buy the best possible insurance and then bring a bunch of termites into your house and say, have at it, because that would be crazy, right? So we there are some things that we can do to prevent our future healthcare costs. It's sort of difficult to quantify. It's difficult to, to know the return on investment. But uh, to keep that part in mind, and I'm certainly not perfect myself, I'll ad- definitely admit that. But that is one of the reasons I really scaled back work was to have time to exercise, to take care of myself, because I see that as a true investment in my physical health and financial health. And I know you guys, Cody and Justin, talk about that a lot. Um, But I just wanted to mention that because in a place where it feels like we're so difficult to control, you know, in in fire and in entrepreneurship, the big expenses that people often talk about are transportation, housing, and food. I think we should add a fourth. I think we should add health care. And there are some elements of control that we can have in, in what can seem like a very difficult to control area. And I think Jackie's outline is perfect. And we all should also should add the prevention element, too. Yeah, I, I think that's really important to um, to work. And that could come from things like just going to see your your general practitioner once a year, you know, doing those wellness visits so that you can stay well. So a little bit on the front end with that could definitely help the whole, you know, healthcare landscape. So a lot of times people are avoiding actually pulling the trigger on retiring early because of a fear of some kind of unforeseen expense. And healthcare is often one of those. And I think an area that is a a really big one where people can get scared of just because of how large the amounts can be. And I think it came up with some of that Susie Orman discussion that a lot of people kind of rallied around. And that's long-term care. You know, maybe if you had to be put in a nursing home or something like that, something that is not just a simple in and out medical procedure, but where you need full-time long-term care. Are there any kind of special plans that you would add on to your normal health insurance? Uh, any pros and cons to that? Just curious what your take is on on that subject. Well, I think as you get older, um, long-term care is something that's real. And even though I have a daughter, I wouldn't want my daughter to stop her life to take care of me. I'd rather her, you know, find a a good place for me um, in my older years. And I've had to think a lot about this, guys, because I have um, two great aunts. One passed away at 101. The other one passed away at 111. So longevity, (laughs) yes, yes. She was one of the oldest living people in the world. And longevity runs in my family. So I've had to think a lot about this. And getting a long-term care policy is probably something that I would want to do. And then obviously, if you are... You know, they say long-term care, as far as needing insurance, you either have to, for the people that don't need it, or the people that are really, really poor, or the people that are really, really rich. Everybody in the middle, you probably need long-term care insurance. And so I look to get a policy for that because, again, I don't want to be a burden on my daughter or anyone else. And if we're, and I feel like with the technology that we have, it's going to be normal to live to over a hundred. So what are we going to do when we're too frail to take care of ourselves um, when we get, you know, that old? So I definitely will probably be looking at um, long-term care insurance policies. And the interesting part is that that's another crazy industry that is kind of broken right now. But um, I, I definitely feel like that's something that I would would need to do and most people should probably look at as they get older. I would say 50, 55, 60 is usually the range where you would start looking at something like that. Yes, Jackie, I was going to exactly say that. So long-term care insurance sort of has a sweet spot for, you know, if you buy it too early, you may be better off just investing that money. Um, and if you buy it too late, the premiums are so high that, there's there's a sweet spot that I've seen around, would you say 55, 60 is what I tend to see um, yeah. as far as, as purchasing it. But what happened with the long-term care insurance industry is they under they ended up charging too inexpensive of premiums. And then they were having difficult time making the payouts. So the premiums for long-term care insurance are quite a bit higher than they were. So it's just something to consider. Are there other ways? Can you self-insure with that premium? Because the premiums are very, very high. 
insurance is really for something that you can't afford if something were to happen to you. And long-term care is extremely, extremely expensive, but the premiums can also be extremely expensive. So you kind of look at the trade-off. Is this something that I'm able to self-insure for or not? And as Jackie said, if you're extremely rich, then you probably don't. Or if you think that you can accumulate um, or maybe you have accumulated enough, then maybe you don't. But I don't have an easy answer for long-term care insurance because the premiums are so, so high, but there is sort of that age type sweet spot that I've seen. Yeah. And the one thing that I do plan on doing with some of that, you know, health savings account um, fortress that I'm sitting on is that I can use those dollars to pay for long-term care insurance premium. So perhaps that's where I will deploy some of that money. Well, I just got to say, wow, we have covered so much in this episode and obviously everything is super nuanced as I've learned and as you guys have so beautifully spoken, but obviously we couldn't cover everything. So Lynn, we'll start with you. Where can people find you on the internet? So for health insurance, I have a website called fihealthcare.com and it really is a crowdsourced database of options of all these options and it was something that i created for our own family and then people essentially asked me to make it public and so that's what i did it has right now 22 different options so the exchange is just one of them so you can take a look at that site it has the pros and cons eligibility criteria and helpful resources And if they have questions, they can reach me at hello.fihealthcare at gmail.com. Awesome. And how about you, Jackie? Well, look, I can't get much better than Phi Healthcare. Like, so (laughs) I have to give another vote for Phi Healthcare because I love that it's crowdsourced and there is so much good information there. I don't need to replicate what she's done, but I have set up a... um, special email address. Well, if any of your listeners have specific questions around health savings accounts and high deductible plans, um, I have an email address. It's hsaquestion at gmail.com. And we'll put that in the show notes. But I just love problem solving around health savings accounts and high deductible health plans because when I was doing my research it was such a shortage of good information where it's integrating all the pieces of this whole HSA high deductible plan. So if you email me and you have a situation that you're curious about or question that nobody seems to answer, I'm the nerd that will answer it for you. (laughs) Lynn, Jackie, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is a topic that is important to every single listener out there, no matter where they're at in their five journey, what their plans are, even if they have no desire to retire early, this is an important topic. So thank you for coming on the show and just giving us so much wisdom and tactical information. Thanks, guys. This was great. Thank you, guys. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.